Hi, I'm Emily Candela. I'm an artist and a design historian, and this show is inspired by something that really interests me. The ways that science meets art and design. On this series, we bring you stories from the long relationship between the arts and one particular science. X-ray crystallography, which is 100 years old this year. And it's a science that reveals the invisible, the minuscule structures of atoms in molecules and crystals, the structures of everything from salt to DNA to metals. But this series isn't only about atoms, molecules, and crystals. It's also about how the seemingly obscure science of X-ray crystallography has been leaving its mark on art and design for decades. Welcome to Atomic Radio, a project of the Science Museum Art Program. This episode is about great shifts in scale. Specifically, it's about dramatically magnified molecules. Today, we're talking about molecular structures that have been translated into forms much larger than their original size, from a mall to a monument to animated human-sized DNA. My guest this week is the historian of science, Soraya de Chateaurevian, who will speak with me about this very phenomenon. And later, we will go inside the atomic structure of a molecule. Specifically, inside a molecule from a sperm whale. I know that sounds strange. Let me explain. For today's episode, one of Atomic Radio's sound designers, Sam Conran, built something known as an aural architecture. It's a virtual sound space in the shape of a molecule of myoglobin, which is a protein found in the muscle of a whale. And Sam's space makes voices reverberate just as they would as if they were speaking to you from inside the myoglobin molecule itself. And we've asked the writer Daniel Marone to compose a play specially for this molecular space, which you'll hear later in the show. You might want to get your headphones ready for this. A couple of weeks ago, I met the cultural historian Celeste Olalkiaga at a conference, and she introduced me to a mysterious 20th century ruin in Caracas, Venezuela. I cornered her during one of the conference coffee breaks and asked her to describe it for us. I'm in Naimahan with Celeste Olalkiaga, who's going to talk about the helicoide. Uh, el helicoide de la Roca Tarpeya in Caracas, Venezuela, um, is uh, or was going to be a commercial center, uh, very state of the art. Uh, it was built in 1960 in the shape of a spiral, but actually a double spiral, much like the genetic uh, double helix. Um, 
with the idea that you could drive uh, in your car all the way up uh, to all the different businesses um, that you might be interested in visiting. You could park in front of them, and then through uh, another helix, you would go down. So not only were shoppers meant to drive inside this mall, which is already a pretty unique feature, but they'd be driving on an enormous double spiral. The building is known for short as El Helicoide, with an H, a word which comes from the root helix, meaning spiral. And this building is reminiscent of the double helix structure of the DNA molecule, which had been discovered seven years earlier with X-ray crystallography data. You can see a picture of it on our website, atomicradio.org. Uh, it was, uh, as I said, state-of-the-art. It was going to have um, um, th- about 300 businesses. It was going to have showrooms, a heliport, a hotel, a club. Uh, it was so advanced uh, for its time that uh, it, it even impressed um, the, the builders of, uh, of the United States, uh, malls and roads, and in fact, uh, MoMA, had a show in uh, 1961 called Roads, where El Helicoide starred because it was basically one long road, and a a road that um, brought you to, spirally brought you up to consumer heaven, um, (laughs) except that it never was completed. El Helicoide was carved out of a hill. From the outside, it looks almost like a Mayan temple, with ridges, like stairs going all the way up. Only it's much more curvaceous. Because of the political difficulties in Venezuela, at the time it was associated to the dictatorship, um, a dictatorship of Marcos Pérez Jiménez at the time that it was conceived but not built. And uh, then it was abandoned. It was abandoned for 20 years, and for the last 30 years, it has been occupied by the national security intelligence. Um, so it's a beautiful, emblematic ruin of, uh, of the contradictions of modernity. It's an emblem of hope and faith in the future. But one that now stands more for the past. Maybe the dashed, ruined dreams of the past than it does for the future we imagine today. This never-completed mall is one of several grand structures built according to the greatly magnified forms of molecules and atoms in the 1950s and 1960s. Ones that bubbled over with just this kind of optimism in the future of science and technology, commerce and global politics. And maybe all of them are ruins in one way or another. Some have completely disappeared. In the Heels Furniture Store on Tottenham Court Road in London, a helical chandelier made of light bulbs on the ends of metal bars used to spiral along a central metal spine, like a ladder, all the way up the main circular staircase, as though it was a gigantic luminescent mechanical strand of DNA. This was back in the 1950s. The shop is still there on Tottenham Court Road, but the chandelier is gone. I checked. 
One of the ambitious post-war molecular designs that you can still see is the Atomium in Brussels. It's a giant hexagonal monument in gleaming steel that was built for the Brussels World's Fair in 1958. It looks a lot like a crystallographer's model of a structure of atoms. In fact, it's based on the atomic structure of an iron crystal magnified 156 billion times. The atomium was part of the utopian, peaceful image of the atom promoted in the 50s. An image that the models made by X-ray crystallographers were particularly well-suited to because they were about the structures of atoms making up molecules, something relatively safe and friendly, rather than the atom of nuclear physics which birthed the bomb only a decade and a half earlier. And like El Helicoide, you could go inside the atomium, inside this iron crystal. Its nine spheres are connected by tubes with escalators inside them to move visitors between them and to get people up to the atom at the very top, the one with the restaurant inside. These buildings are incredibly theatrical, but it probably doesn't get more theatrical than the crystallographer's models that were translated into enormous, showy, and sometimes animated versions of themselves for the earliest science television programs. To tell us more about these molecular television stars and how X-ray crystallography went public in post-war culture, I turned to Soraya de Chadrevian, a historian of science at the University of California in Los Angeles. Hello, Emily. Hi, Soraya. She's the author of the book Designs for Life, which covers the role of X-ray crystallography in the rise of the science of molecular biology after World War II. Yeah, so there were these first television programs. Television was still coming into its own in the 1950s, you know. So there were also the first um, scientific programs. And here the models really had um, a big role to play because they were visual. They were in the center, much more the models were in the center of these shows, much more than the people, you know. <laughs> there was a much, there was a lot of talks which were the most telegenic models. And there were, you know, because of course this was all black and white. Now these models were um, partly colored. So, you know, how could you... Um, uh, transmit this on the black and white screen and how could you use the models um, for best effect and there was much less talk how the scientists would appear on screen and even if some of them were quite quite worried about how they would do and some apparently didn't do so well <laughs> but um um, but the models, there was a lot of talk about these models and how to stage them and to put them center stage you know, I, the models that were the most prominent at the time scientifically um, were the, the big models of molecules of life, as they called them. And these were the DNA and the protein models, which were, you know, they were new, they were exciting. They decided that one of these DNA models should always be on a, on a turning around pedestal that would turn around for much effect, like a ballerina, you know. This DNA model that spun continuously throughout some of the earliest BBC science programs not only competed with the scientists' presenters for attention, but also 
for size. Many of these televised models of submicroscopic forms threatened to dwarf the scientists. You know, two things happen actually when you blow them up so much, right? The proportions in some way, too, they are more difficult to understand, right? If the person seems small in relation to the model, um, that sort of distorts things, right? Um, you know, sometimes you put something next to an object to, to, to show the relationships. Now, here in this respect, they would be completely be jumbled up, right? So it is for didactic reasons, certainly, because then the scientist who, that presents the program can move into the model, virus cells, whatever it is, and point out things. But I like your idea of this sort of making it all a bit fantastic, because I think that certainly also played a role. Some of the models that scientists used in their everyday research looked a bit fantastical in the first place, in part because X-ray crystallographers made very creative use of materials. The models generally were built of different kinds of material, depending what actually what these molecular watches found, or they found most useful to represent what they wanted to show, that this could go from tennis and ping pong balls to even children's shoes to show the symmetry. These models were not only fantastical things to look at or tools for teaching, they were also political. Physics was implicated with the atomic bombs, so with um, now wondrous but also very destructive uh, applications of these sciences. And so there was a, a very much interest in showing that a better side of science, right? One that did not have these military implications. This is the time of the Cold War, and science was uh, had also a political role to, to play in these um, international relationships because it was represented of being this objective, apolitical enterprise um, which could bridge those international divisions. For this episode, we decided to revisit the post-war tradition of sparking the scientific imagination by climbing inside of molecular structures by building a dramatically scaled-up version of a molecule for ourselves. But we didn't build one with steel like the atomium or table tennis balls like the models Soraya mentioned. Instead, ours is, maybe more appropriately for 2014, Immaterial. One of the show's sound designers, Sam Conran, has built us an aural architecture, a space you can only perceive through sound. And this space is based on a molecular model from the 1960s by the crystallographer John Kendrew. It's a model of myoglobin, a protein found in the muscle of a sperm whale. And we are about to enter this molecule. Inside, we'll hear a radio play by the writer Daniel Marone, a play inspired by this model and by the life of all models as translations from the submicroscopic world. If you have headphones around, you might want to listen to this next part with them because they'll give you an extra special sense of the 3D space we've created. But if you don't, there is nothing wrong with listening the old-fashioned way, through the air.
When my grandfather was in prison, he and another man were working together, cutting lumber with a two-man saw. The other man, who was English, said, So, you speak German? The man asked him, How do you say fish in German? My grandfather said, Fish, and they continued sawing. The man asked him, How do you say shoe? Uh, shoe. At this point, the other man stopped asking questions, and according to my grandfather, never spoke to him again. Was that a parable about translation? I thought as a translator you might appreciate it. It's like sheer vaudeville. But there is a lot of overlap between German and English. It should make my job easier. How do you say complex in German? <laughs> complex? Does this mean you're never speaking to me again? <laughs> No, I'm just curious. In the middle of the poem, you translate kompliziert as complex. Isn't kompliziert closer to complicated? I guess I wanted it to seem more aphoristic. Self-evident. Complicated sounds too vague in English. I think it's been hijacked by social media and sort of drained of meaning. Like when people say they're in a complicated relationship. Yes. I wanted to avoid that feeling of a status update. So complex is sharper? And it also suggests scale. Something made of parts. Something structural? Something composite. Organs are complex. Yeah, okay. I don't want to focus on it too much, but it is like the hinge of the poem. It's not quite a traditional turn, I think, but the poem does pivot around it. I think it is a kind of turning point. You pose a question, and then you make a series of claims. But I feel like the poem has a number of turns. The first stanza feels almost gothic to me. Because of the blood? And the startled heart. It's sort of like a telltale heart. But definitely because of the warm blood, too. It made me think of... In Moby Dick, there's a chapter called Cytology, which is like a zoological survey of whales. And one of the first things it says is that whales can be distinguished from fish for two main reasons. Lungs and warm blood. These are very American references, Poe and Melville. But then the poem stops being gothic, do you think? Yes. After that setup, you open it up with the very next line. And suddenly it seems the whole poem is about comparison. Well, Vergleich. You maybe know this already. Vergleich can be more specific than just comparison. You mean simile? The root word is gleich, equal, same. Should a translation be the same as the original? Well, you're a very faithful translator. Very precise. Sometimes I worry that my translations are too conservative. Maybe it's good to be adventurous if you're translating Rilke or someone. But if the poet is still alive? Usually I'm trying to stay out of the way. This is actually how I feel when I'm writing sometimes. Like I'm translating and trying to get out of the way. But there's no way to remove yourself entirely. The marvel of warm blood in such a small cabinet startles the heart, invites comparison. A fist moves a machine many fists in size. Is mouse blood pumped by a mere poor heart? 
each chamber a curled, grain-like finger. Organs are complex. Magnitude suits them. The heart of the blue whale is, at 1,300 pounds, the perfect size. And when it beats, sounds like a fist pounding a desk. A mouse heart simply whirls, four fingers drumming softly. You just heard a radio play by the writer Daniel Marone that took place inside a virtual sound space made by Sam Conran and inspired by a molecule of myoglobin, a protein from a sperm whale. It was performed by Yanina Lang and Edwina Atlee with sound composition by Emmett Glynn. And we are now leaving the whale. And that's the show this week. Thanks to my guest, Soraya Deshadaravian of the University of California, Los Angeles. To find out more about the birth of molecular biology and its models, check out her book, Designs for Life, as well as the book, Models, the Third Dimension of Science, which she co-edited with Nick Hopwood and which is a permanent fixture on my desk. At the beginning of our show today, you heard the cultural historian Celeste Olalkiaga talking about El Helicoide, the unfinished 1960s mall in Caracas, Venezuela. Celeste is currently directing a project about this building and its complicated past. And there's so much more about this fascinating ruin of the 20th century that we could not fit in this episode, but which you can read about on the project's website proyectoelicoide.wordpress.com, where you'll find links to their crowdfunding campaign. Links to the project are also on our website, atomicradio.org. And join us next week for the final episode of the Atomic Radio series, in which we perfect the art of grasping in the dark for the structures of nature with the artist Conrad Shawcross and the journalist Chris Hatherell, who founded Super Collider, an agency that explores science from a pop-cultural perspective. 
Atomic Radio is part of the Resonance FM residency at the Science Museum and is supported by the Science Museum Art Program. We are also a part of the International Year of Crystallography. To find out more about everything else happening for the International Year, go to iycr.org. This series is a part of my PhD across the Royal College of Art and the Science Museum, which is funded by an Arts and Humanities Research Council Collaborative Doctoral Award. Thanks to my fabulous PhD supervisors, Sarah Teasley and Peter Morris. And special thanks to Hannah Redler. You can hear us again next week on Resonance FM and online at soundcloud.com slash atomic radio. Atomic Radio is made by me, Emily Candela, and co-produced by Chris Dixon. Sound design and composition by Emmett Glynn and Sam Conran. You can find us on Twitter at radio underscore atomic. And you can find me on Twitter at Lady Meanlice. Visit us at atomicradio.org with your comments and feedback, and we'll speak to you again next week.